Welcome to Byline Confidential, a podcast where we talk with journalists about their lives, their work, and their careers. I'm Greg Pratt, and I'm here with Jackie Spinner. It's great to be here, Greg. So we're kind of like at the top of a parking garage overlooking the city, which is kind of cool. It's it's quiet. It would be very um, Watergate-esque if you had documents or tips for me and we were in the middle of the night. But <laughs> I might have some tips for you, but I don't have any documents. Well, so um, I appreciate you taking some time to talk with me. And I guess I would start by asking you about the fact that uh, you've you're probably most famous as a war correspondent, right? I yeah, I, I, that's probably my big um, SEO is my time in Iraq. And uh, and now you cover media. I cover media for Columbia Journalism Review, and that's I mean that's not my primary job. My primary job is as a professor. Well, do you enjoy do you enjoy making that transition? Is covering conflict and then covering media? I love telling stories. And I, my beat is still primarily the Middle East. That's my expertise. So, and there are not as many opportunities for me to, to cover that um, from Chicago. So when I had the opportunity to um, apply for the Columbia Journalism Review job, um, I saw it as um, a way for me to, um, to report more full-time than I have been since I left the Washington Post. I had been covering media issues for American Journalism Review for a couple of years as a freelancer, and so this made that um, a little more permanent um, for the other publication, Columbia Journalism Review. So it's, I mean, give me a topic and I'll cover it. It's, you know, I didn't set out to cover media or to be a media critic. Um, It it was an opportunity to tell stories. And uh, you've been telling stories for a long time now, I guess. Uh, How long have you been in the business? I wrote my first uh, story that was published in my hometown newspaper when I was 13 years old. So I have been doing this for several decades. Um, So a long time. What was that about? Um, It was about Congressman Bob Michael. M I C H E L. <laughs> um, it was he had given a speech at my high school, and um, I wrote the story for the for the local newspaper. Uh, was that um, it was, um, I'm forgetting I'm forgetting the the name of the town. It's like an eighty thousand person town. Uh, Decatur. I grew up in Decatur in central Illinois. Yeah, I was going to say Decatur, but then I was going to say DeKalb, which it's certainly not DeKalb. It's not DeKalb. DeKalb is near Iowa. <laughs> Do you still have that clip? You know, I, you know, this was back in the in the late '80s, and um, we didn't have the online archiving system that we do now. Um, I probably have it somewhere. Um, I've written a lot of stories since then. Um, at the time, I didn't think it was all that significant because um, I was 13, and it was a story. Right, right. Uh, were you one of these kids that was thinking all their life, "I'm going to be a news person"? I think that when I started writing for my high school newspaper, um, when I was, I mean, I was a freshman in high school, I, I knew that's, that's what I wanted to do. Um, I've always been curious about how the world works, and I always wanted to be the first of my three siblings to tell my mother something that we all saw, so I, this um, deadline scoop mentality has been with me for a long time. But yeah, I mean, once I started doing journalism, it was very hard to consider anything else as a career. And so I'm grateful that, you know, decades later, I'm still doing it. And I'm teaching it, which is, um, which is, which is interesting part of my career right now. Did you, um, so you, you went to the Daily Object, um, you, you went to, what, SIU? And I went to SIU Carbondale for my undergraduate, for my, I got my bachelor's there, and I spent my four years basically living at the Daily Egyptian. Was the Daily Egyptian a good paper back in those days? It was a great paper. It still is. It's still one of the top, um, you know, daily newspapers in the state, and 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 one of the better ones in the country. Do you have any good stories from your time down there? Good stories. You mean that I told, or that happened to me? Um, both. Well, you know, I mean, I really fell into journalism. <clears throat> really fell into it at the Daily Egyptian. It's you know, like a lot of. Um, Student journalist, um, I cut my teeth 
at the student newspaper, I realized what it was to be a reporter. It was, um, it probably shaped me in more ways than the classroom did, which I'm very conscious of now as a classroom teacher of journalism, of giving my students um, the experiences I had at the student newspaper, um, because those are the ones that are most meaningful when you are instantly accountable, um, which you are um, when you publish. And um, you know, I <clears throat> I love the camaraderie of the newsroom. Um, my you know my closest friends are are from that period of my life. I remember when I was the editor. Um, I was editor my senior year, and we um, we beat the Daily Illini in the um, college newspaper awards here in Illinois, and it was it was a big deal because you know SIU is often considered the academic stepchild to the University of Illinois. And um, so this was a big deal. And I remember getting up on the top of my desk and looking out at my staff. And I probably had, there were probably 50, 50 to 60 um, student reporters in the newsroom. And I told them to scream at the top of their lungs um, for two minutes for everyone who ever doubted they could be great. And um, that was an important moment for me as well that I see now because it was my, um, my first time when I, I, I knew that I, was, I, I would love to teach. Um, you know, I think as reporters, we spent much of our career chasing um, a story and chasing greatness ourselves. And it's, it's, it's equally rewarding to help other people be, be great. And my goal as a teacher now is for my students and at the time for my staff, um, you know, to be better than I was. I mean, that's, and I, you know, I had some members of the staff um, who, you know, would go on to chase that feeling of greatness, and, and they still are as part of their careers. Um, and I know that there are some who will never feel, have never felt that great about what they've done professionally again. So um, it was, it was a powerful moment to be able to lead people to that kind of greatness. Where does that sense of I, I I always felt that to to be a good editor um, or to be a good teacher you probably have to have some level of uh, of selflessness to want people to be better than you right like a lot of people not everybody feels that uh, some people want to be the very best right and will kill you for coming after their spot um, where does that sense of nurturing come from for you Well, you know I. I was very fortunate to have spent my career at the Washington Post because everything that I have learned about mentoring and about teacher came from my colleagues and my editors at the newspaper. I think there's a misconception that at a paper the size and prestige of the Washington Post that it's very cutthroat and um, you know it's you have to watch your back. And I had the opposite experience um, at the newspaper. I started there very young. I was 23 um, or 24 when I started at the Post. And, you know, it's a very unforgiving place in journalism, in your career, to start at the top. Because, um, you know, you don't have, you're not somewhere making mistakes in obscurity. You have a huge platform, um, uh, you know, to make those mistakes and to fail. And so I was motivated by fear of failure for several uh, my first several years at the at the post but I also was carried along by um, the generosity of my colleagues and I haven't found in other newsrooms I've visited or in talking to um, friends and, and colleagues at other papers uh, a similar environment like that and I know now how fortunate I was um, to have worked with people who I mean, greatness was something everyone had already achieved, and so nobody was looking to step on somebody else in order to get where they were going, because we were all already there. And that's sort of an refreshing, refreshing environment to be in when you're a young reporter, and it was a very formidable lesson for me as well. Um, you know, I have always competed solely with myself and not with the people around me. Um, you know, if I have achieved anything in my career... You know, it's been because I, I, I worked hard and I didn't want to fail. It had nothing to do with the fact that I wanted to be better than somebody else. That's probably pretty healthy. 
it's a very it's a very healthy way I think to to be a journalist you know and and be a good person you know I don't I don't think that you know we decide when we make the, the decision to be a journalist that we are deciding to be a bad person I mean there it doesn't mean that I'm not competitive I am very competitive I don't like to be scooped um you know I but I you know what I like more than being than getting a story first is being 100% accurate um, and that all, and I think that that was um, that came from those you know first early years at the Washington Post. This, that fear of being wrong and of failing um, that that was it was terrifying at the time, but um, it has really guided my my career. I mean, I do not like to be wrong, and I it has become it is challenging for me covering the media, being a media critic, because um, first of all, I'm a hard news reporter. I don't dabble in opinion. I know that that is a shift we've seen in journalism. I, I don't agree with that shift. Um, I'm very, you know, pursuit of objectivity kind of reporter, and so I'm uncomfortable, um, you know, taking the leap to opinion j- journalism, and you have to somewhat with uh, criti- critical writing. Um, but I also, you know, report out my own thoughts. So, um, you know, if I... If I do, um, with, with my new role as a, as, a, as a media writer, if I do, um, you know, cr- maybe cross into opinion reporting a little bit, it's because I've talked to a lot of people who are a whole lot smarter than me and know a whole lot more um, in order to make, make, form whatever opinion it is uh, that I have. You know, that objectivity thing is a thing that sort of, um, and that accuracy thing is a thing that sort of pops out in your book, um, Tell Them I Didn't Cry which um, people should read. Thank you. Um, that's the first plug of the day, I guess. Um, you sort of talk a little bit about that, about how before you got to Iraq, you were looking at the contract stuff for things like Halliburton. And um, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's something about how you wanted to make sure you were just you were fair and not just, just, just popping them for, for getting no-bid contracts and that there was a... I think there was a thing, and then you wrote a little bit about how when you were overseas, you could see that, I think one of those companies got dinged for, for being off on their estimates for meals, and that, you know, overseas, you know, sometimes you don't know when you're going to eat, and so it's hard to estimate. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, and I... I mean, that's something it, you wrote about. I, I did, a, a long time ago, but, um, you know, people have asked me a lot, you know, why I wanted to go to Iraq, and... You know, I I didn't dream of being a foreign correspondent when I was coming up at the Washington Post. Um, it wasn't, you know, something I, I thought about. I enjoyed to travel, but I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of money. I didn't travel a lot when I was younger. And, um, you know, I when the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, I was um, covering reconstruction contracting. And I wanted to go to Iraq because my story was there. You know, my editors were convinced that if there was misspending or corruption, it was happening in Washington. And, you know, there's certainly a fair amount of corruption that does happen in Washington. But I really thought the story, um, you know, was in Baghdad. And I, wa- I wanted to go there to cover it. Um, you mentioned the, the meals. Um, you know, it's very easy when you're here in the United States and you're sifting through these contracts, you know, to write about how, um, you know, a company may be off by a couple hundred meals a day. But when I was in Iraq and I was embedded and I was with units and we didn't show up at the DFAC for food, you know, because we were out somewhere doing something, it became clear to me why those were just estimates, you know, and... You know, there's there there's too much reporting um, that and second guessing that happens without going to see for yourself. I mean, that's what motivates me as a journalist. Um, I, I say this a lot. Um, you know, when journalists are the ones, you know, when you see footage of a of a of a hurricane coming toward the coast, and you know, see the lines of cars, and they're all stacked up leaving the coast. People are evacuating, and you'll see two or three cars heading to to the eye of the storm. Those fools are journalists first responders probably as well, but also journalists, because that's what we do. We don't wait at the end where all the evacuees are coming and say to people, what was it like? Describe to me what the hurricane felt like. You know, what did it feel like? I mean, we are there and we feel the water against our skin. That's what we do as journalists. And so, you know, for me, being a successful reporter covering the story of contracting meant seeing what contracting looked like in Iraq. 
And, um, you know, and I wasn't satisfied just taking the criticisms of a politician motivated by whatever, you know, if, if there was, um, you know, corruption or, you know, that was happening, I wanted to see it for myself to be able to, to cover it. And that's, I mean, that's, says, a. that's how I report. I mean, I have always felt that way, that I have to see it in order to write about it. Well, I was struck by it as an example of good journalism, you know, that you don't necessarily think about it that way, but but um, that, was a, that was a good little passage. Um, you basically spent your whole career at the Post, right? Yeah, 14 years. Would you, um, how'd you get hired there? I was, um, I was at Berkeley, the University of California at Berkeley, going to graduate school, and um, I was hired there um, as an intern. To, um, to cover business. They offered me um, an internship covering business. I had, had no experience covering finance. Um, and so I almost turned them down because I don't like to do things I'm not going to be great at. Um, it's why I eventually gave up golfing because I knew I would never be great at it. And I only like to do things I can do well. So, um, but, you know, some people interviewing, thankfully, and said, are you crazy? You don't turn down the Washington Post. And you know, I had been turned down by a lot of other newspapers. I was looking for internships. You know, I have been turned time turned down several times by the Chicago Tribune, um, my home state newspaper. Um, you know, I, I have a list of you know dozens of, of newspapers that you know the Baltimore Sun rejected me for an internship that summer, but the Washington Post um, took a chance, and um, I had a very prolific summer. I think I wrote about sixty stories, business stories. Um, you know, I didn't, still didn't know a lot about business, but I, I know how to tell stories. And at the end, that's, that's all it is. Business stories are telling stories. And so, um, you know, I was then hired as a two-year intern, um, which is how the Washington Post hires young, you know, young talent. And I went to the Southern, El- Southern Maryland Bureau, which is the far reaches at the time. It was the farthest bureau from the, wa- the Washington uh, downtown headquarters and, and spent some time there and, you know, eventually ended up in Iraq. That's not counting, um, like, foreign bureaus, is it? You mean that's... They had foreign bureaus, right? At the time, they did. Yeah, the, the, the Washington Post had, you know, a number of um, foreign bureaus. We also had national bureaus at that time, which we no longer... Uh, we, the Washington Post, no longer has. Um, and um, it was it was a different period of time. This was the late 90s. Um, the Washington Post is now back in a period of expansion, um, you know, with its its new ownership, but um, there were multiple people who were hired on off the internship that summer, the summer of 1995. It was an unprecedented number of people the Washington Post hired, including Seth Hamblin, um, the who became the deputy visual global visual editor for the Washington uh, or for the Wall Street Journal, who died on Sunday. Um, we had a we had an incredible class of um, very talented reporters. Did you know him? I did. I did. I was very sad um, to hear that he died after running a, a race. He was very talented, you know, uh, visual journalist. Very, very talented. Yeah, well, it's, um, I think he was like 46, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sad. Yeah, he was very young. When you were, um, when you were coming up, um, how'd you become a good journalist? Do you think you always were a good journalist? I don't know if I'm a good journalist. I mean, what does good mean? Um, I hope I'm not a bad journalist. I've certainly written bad stories. I've written good stories. But I think back to something Neil Henry once told me. Neil was um, was a former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and an amazing, amazing um, uh, reporter. And he was my one of my professors at Berkeley and became a mentor to me and then became dean of Berkeley's um, journalism school. He said, you're never good at, as good as your best story, and you're never as bad as your worst. And I think that's true. I think that, you know, as journalists, we all have, one, we have stories that just fall short for whatever reason. You know, somebody steers us in the wrong direction. We don't have enough reporting. Um, you know, we make some sort of misstep. Um, and those stories don't define us any more than, you know, the front page above the stories 
above the fold stories to Venus. I've had plenty of those and I've had plenty of missteps. Um, you know, but in the end, I, I mostly want to get it right. And I guess, does that make me a good journalist? I don't know. I make my students be on time. Does that make me a good teacher? They don't always like it. Probably not. Probably not. Being on time doesn't always have... You know, Rob Hart, who is one of my favorite photojournalists in the city, formerly of the Chicago Sun-Times, now of the city of Chicago, um, he told me last week that he would have dropped my class <laughs> because I was too hard. And I was really, I was really sad by that. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, I want to get into Iraq a little. Okay. Uh, but before I do, is there, is there, um, I mean, do you have highlights from your time before Iraq that people don't ask you about? Absolutely. You know, it's, um, it's sort of an odd thing to be, de- to be, to be defined by such a short period of, of a very long career. Um, you know, people will often, you know, read my book. My book was about the first nine months I spent in Iraq. I went back after that. And I went back and I went back and I went back. And I, you know, covered Arab Spring. And I became, you know, um, a much more experienced um, correspondent covering conflict. You know, when I, um, you know, and so it's just awkward to me even that people will read the book and think that's who I am. It, it's who I was in that during that nine months. And, you know, but it's... It's it's not who I still am in some in some respects and um you know I I loved covering local government and you know students will often ask me you know I, I want to go cover I want to be a conflict reporter I want to be a foreign correspondent um, there are you know the path that I took doesn't exist anymore I mean it's very hard the these um, there are fewer jobs as a foreign correspondent. And so I, I can't really use my own experience to help guide anybody else. But I do know that I was really good at covering war because I'm really good at covering city government. It's the same, it's the same thing. It's, you know, developing sources, um, you know, being fair, um, getting it right. You know, I had a reputation for those things before I even went to Iraq. The Washington Post wouldn't have allowed me to go to Iraq if I hadn't had a whole body of work, including covering obscure financial instruments, you know, and some of the things that I covered, terrorism insurance after, you know, 9-11, the attacks, 9-11 attacks. I mean, I had a whole body of work before I went to Iraq that allowed me to go to Iraq. Um, you know, I... I've had a body of work since that I'm pretty proud of. Um, you know, but it's, it's sort of like when you talk to a young photojournalist, um, about why they want to go to war, they are often motivated by these very dramatic images of conflict that we see, you know, the, the soldiers on the battlefield, the fire, you know, the, all the near death experiences that reporters and journalists have and then are able to document, you know, the very dramatic moments. But, you know, if you think about, um, you know, the Islamic State, ISIS, right now, and how they came to be in power and to be on this march to create this caliphate across two countries, you know, a lot of us, myself included, were focused on the conflict, you know, what was in front of us. We were less focused on, you know, some of the stories that, I don't know, um, you know, Abu Baghdadi and these ISIS leaders were at Camp Bukha in Iraq. I, it was a place that I went to and reported from. I didn't ask the right questions, you know, at the time. Um, you know, the United States, in some ways, you know, helped create, you know, the Islamic State. Um, and, you know... And nobody saw that coming. So, you know, I think that, you know, this desire to cover war and, you know, you, people are thrilled by the, um, the idea of it and the adrenaline. But, you know, it's really, you know, important to stay focused on the story. And so, um, you know, I had a story that I wrote before I went to Iraq about a truck driver in Texas 
who um, volunteered to be a contract, you know, to work for KBR. And, um, and then I followed up with him when he came back. And, you know, his life had, had fell apart at some point. And, you know, I'm really proud of that story because, um, you know, there was a lot of misunderstanding about why people were going to Iraq to drive a truck. These truck drivers made a whole lot more money than um, the soldiers and, and Marines, and there was a lot of animosity um, about that. But, you know, these were, you know, American citizens putting their lives on the line who wanted to work and make a better life for their family at extraordinary risk and to support the U.S. military, you know. So um, some of those stories I wrote, um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of. When I covered the Battle of Fallujah, um, I, you know, I wrote a lot of stories from the rear, about the fuel supply um, troops and, um, you know, a lot of the support staff, the Navy Seabees, the construction battalions, because those stories were enormously important as well as the actual battle stories in, in, in some ways. And a lot, a lot of people were paying attention to those stories. Well, that's logistics, right? Logistics. And, and I mean, logistics are, without logistics, you can't win a war. Well, you... There's, I think there's this idea that, you know, unless you're on the front line, you're not really in battle. But, you know, in a place like Iraq and Afghanistan, there is no front line. The moment you're, you enter Iraqi airspace, you're on the front line. Somebody's trying to shoot you down. <laughs> I mean, you can, you know, the, 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 the number of soldiers who died on a, you know, a forward operating base, you know, and there was a, a funny term for them called fobbits, you know, soldiers who never left the fob, the forward operating base. And, um, you know, fobbits died. And, you know, fobbits were there to support people leaving the, the, going outside of the wire. And, you know, I just, I mean, some of that's just military culture, but um, I would argue that anybody who flew into Iraqi airspace or Afghanistan airspace was on the front line. Tell me about this truck driver. Um, whatever happened to him? Do you know? Um, we're still friends on Facebook. Friends in quotations. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't have you know I don't have conversations with him really. Um, I know he's still living in Texas. Um, it'd be a great story to follow up with at some point. Um, I'd also like to find one of the soldiers I covered in the Abu Ghraib prison scandal. Um, and go back and sort of, you know, some of them are out of are out of Leavenworth at this point, and you know, write about them, you know, piecing together back their lives. I mean, they're, you know, I ask my students I, if they've heard of Abu Ghraib, and and many of them have not. Really? Um, yeah, and and it's you know they were in grade school, you know, in in two thousand four. So I mean, I don't remember major world events that happened when I was in fourth grade you know um so I, I don't you know I don't blame them but you know if people underestimate what that scandal did in terms of turning the Middle East against the United States um in you know fostering this hatred you know toward us and and it was hugely damaging. It was damaging for, from the, to the United States and to the military from a public relations standpoint, but it also cost us lives. And, um, you know, and so I, I just wonder if, um, you know, I, I have a sense, and there's been reporting about this, that, you know, obviously these, the, the individuals who participated were culpable and um, they deserved, you know, to be held accountable for their actions, but I also think they were scapegoated in some respect. I think the leadership of the army um, was not held accountable in the same way that the that the grunts were. So um, it would be interesting to find one of the soldiers. I mean, that's the reason I ultimately went to Iraq is because I helped the Washington Post um, break a piece of that of that story. Yeah, you had been. Um um, in touch with one of those people before it broke, yeah, right? Sabrina Harmon. Yeah. Um, yeah, Sabrina Harmon. She, she's the one I'd like to find. Um, you know, and she, I'm sure she's trying to get on with her life, you know. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, I'd help the, I, 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 I have talked to her and I remember, um, I was down at uh, KBR headquarters in Texas. Actually, I was spending time with this truck driver and, um, 
I had been letting my editor know that I was talking to somebody and, you know, I thought there was a story and they didn't really do much with it. And he called me and he said, there's a story moving on the wires on 60 Minutes. Um, has got some photos. Does it have to do with anything that soldier you were talking to? And I said, yes, <laughs> it does. <laughs> and he's like, well, we got to get it in the paper tomorrow. We're going to get it. Sco- we're going to get scooped. I said, I can't do that. I've been off the record with her. All the conversations, she knows that I have, you know, told you, but I do not have her permission. And, you know, in, in the scheme of things, you know, if I had burned this young woman, she had no power, you know, um, but I would have known. And, um, and we don't do that as journalists. I mean, we, we, we have, all we have is our word, you know, we lose that, we have nothing. And so, um, we, I think it, it took me a couple of days to get her to reach her in Iraq and to reach her family here in the, te- in, in the United States um, to, in order to get the story. But once we had the story, it was a pretty powerful story because it was, um, I believe at the time, it was the first substantial interview with, um, with one of the soldiers who had been charged with detainee, detainee abuse. Yeah, and, and I think she made the point, I think, if, if I'm recalling correctly, that they were following orders, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that was her... Yeah, that was that was what she said, and she was very young and fairly inexperienced, and um, you know. But if if my editor tells me to do something that I know is not ethical, <laughs> not right, you know, I have an obligation, you know, not to to follow to do what my editor tells me to do. It's a you know, it's not life and death. It's not the same as the military, but the concept is the same. I mean, you know, we all have concepts of right and wrong. The, uh, you know, I'm, there's probably a lot of jumping around that goes on with the, with these interviews sometimes, but you bring up Abu Ghraib and that's, uh, you spent a night there, right? I did. Andrea Bruce was, um, a photographer. She was with the Washington Post at the time. She and I spent the night, um, at Abu Ghraib. Um, I had pitched it to the army that I wanted to write a story about what it was like when, you know, after the Abu Ghraib prison scandal broke, um, the U.S. had a huge problem. They had all of these detainees, and they needed to reduce the size of the population, the detainee population. So every Friday, um, they would um, release people, and family members would come and amass outside the prison um, to catch a glimpse of their loved one leaving the prison. You know, and it was it, it was an extraordinary thing because, you know, under Saddam, you didn't go into Abu Ghraib and get released. You know, you disappeared. And your family was lucky if they ever saw a body. And so it was an extraordinary thing for Iraqis to see people being released. Um, And so, like a lot of reporters there at the time, I would gather outside of Abu Ghraib every Friday and write the story about the detainees being released. And um, I wanted to um, write it from a different perspective. And so I wanted to be inside. And Andrea Bruce and I were able to go inside the prison and, um, you know, interview detainees and sort of see what it looked like. You know, goes back to what I what I said about the reason I wanted to go to Iraq in the first place. You know, um, nobody really knew what was happening inside of Abu Ghraib. I wanted to see Abu Ghraib. I, I mean, I was writing about Abu Ghraib, and I hadn't even seen the cells where this abuse was supposed to have taken place. You know, and I had accounts. You know, eyewitness accounts and accounts of soldiers involved, but I needed to see it for myself. So I was very fortunate that um, Andrea and I were allowed to uh, allowed to do that. Um, it was the night of June 13th, 2004, because on the morning of June 14th, 2004 is when I got grabbed by two, two guys outside of, um, Abu Ghraib. Yeah, you almost got kidnapped. Yeah, almost. I did not get kidnapped. They grabbed me, um, and they were attempting to, I think they were attempting to take me to a taxi. Um, you know, at that time, um, kidnappings were, it was the thing we feared and then grew to fear even more, um, as, you know, people were being kidnapped. Nicholas Berg had just been beheaded. He was the first American who had been beheaded. Um, there were subsequently others who had, who were beheaded um, by Al-Qaeda and, you know, insurgents. It was mostly Al-Qaeda. And so um, I was very fortunate the Marines, um, Barry Johnson, you know, Colonel Barry Johnson, was watching me leave the prison from the guard tower, the Marine guard tower, and saw it happening. And... Um, they were able to, to, to get me away. 
I think I read in, in an interview you did that um, you think they would have killed you? Well, you know, um, there is a chance, right? If you're headed to Fallujah at the time and people were being he- beheaded and um, much more important people than I, you know, uh, Margaret Hassan, people were, you know, were losing their lives. Um, I had no immunity as a journalist. And so I, you know, the, the more fearful moment for me was when I was with the Marines, the Army and Marines in Fallujah then in no, November covering of that year, covering the Battle of Fallujah and seeing the some of these places, you know, where they were keeping hostages and, 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 and killing them, executing them. Um, I think it, that be, it became really real for me when I made the connection between what almost happened and what could have happened. So you were, um, so as a war correspondent, you're embedded and then you would go with the soldiers to the places? Yeah, that... I mean, I was, um, you, I mean, when you're embedded with a unit, you're with a unit. Um, and so you, you do everything that they do, um, except carry a weapon. Um, and so, you know, you would go out on missions with them and patrols and, and that sort of thing. I had, I didn't have any real desire to do that kind of reporting. I wanted to cover more of the, you know, the civilian story in Iraq. Um, but I, after the Battle of Fallujah, which I, I didn't want to do. I mean, I'm sure there were reporters that were chomping to go cover the Battle of Fallujah. I didn't want to die. I didn't want to die. And so um, I was reluctant. I was reluctantly um, participating as, as a correspondent covering that. But, you know, it was, I survived and it was, um, it was, ended up being, um, a, a good experience for me in that, um, you know, the whole purpose of embedding, the reason the military invites reporters to embed is to be able to see what it's like, what it's like to be a soldier in war. I mean, and, um, <clears throat> it's very nuanced, in some ways and you know and to tell the stories of the people who are participating and I think that the Washington Post like a lot of news organizations um, you know you don't want to just have reporters who are embedded you want to have reporters embedded and you want to have reporters who are not um, so that you're able to cover both perspectives because there are different perspectives I mean people react differently to soldiers when you know somebody of you know a, a, a foreign invading army comes into your house and doesn't speak your language and is wearing, you know, alien-looking goggles. I mean, your experience as a civilian interacting with the United States of America is very different than, you know, when I, as a um, journalist and a female, am able to dress as an Iraqi and go into somebody's home. And it's a different experience. And so um, you get, it's, as I said, it's very nuanced. So um, I was embedded, but we also had an Iraqi correspondent, Omar Fakaki, who was um, embedded um, and so he was able to, because this was a joint mission between the United States and the Iraqi army, the new Iraqi army at the time. And so he was able to spend time with the Iraqi army and he, you know, he obviously speaks Arabic and was able to, um, to get that perspective in a way that I wouldn't have both as a woman and as, a, as an American. And then we also had an Iraqi correspondent inside the city of Fallujah, um, who was not embedded with anybody and, um, you know, at great risk greater risk than either Omar and I were taking this this correspondent was taking being inside the city as it was being invaded um, but we were able then to check what was happening from the American side and what the Americans were telling us which was what what the Iraqis were actually experiencing um, and there were discrepancies you know you can go back and look you know at the time the you know the US military denied using white phosphorus which is a banned chemical weapon, and, um, you know, it came out later that they, in fact, had used white phosphorus. And so, um, and we knew that because our correspondent in the city at the hospital was talking to doctors who were seeing wounds consistent with the use of white phosphorus. You know, um, th- there, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask about. Um, one is I want to backpedal to some, back, backtrace, walk back to something you had said, which is um, about not asking the right questions sometimes. Um, and and uh, I'm forgetting the name of the guy you mentioned, the ISIS guy. Well, uh, the head of ISIS. So, I mean, who's who is the head? I don't know. We don't know if we. I don't know if I know. It's it's Abu Baghdadi, but um, it's not me. Yeah, it's not me either. Um, so, yes. So, are, and that was at Camp Buka. Are there questions that things you would have liked to have covered that you didn't? Things you. Well, 
You know, I think that I got booed by several thousand people one time saying this. Um, I think that the reporters in Iraq were getting the majority of the story. I don't think we were necessarily were getting all of the story, but I think we were getting the majority of the story. Um, you know, there is a fog of war. There's a fog of war in, in, in covering it. And, you know, at the time when we were writing about white phosphorus, I asked the question, I got an answer. We, you know, we printed that as well as, you know, the allegations. And, you know, that's the best you can do without proof, <laughs> you know. And so I think in many instances, um, you know, we were doing doing that. But, you know, the reporting was not all you know, great coming out of Iraq. I think, um, you know, all reporters are motivated by different things. Um, you know, a reporter who is motivated by making a name for himself is not someone I want to be with in a war zone. Um, it's not necessarily someone I want to be with in a newsroom. Um, because when you're motivated by your own success, you're not fo necessarily following the truth. And you're not going to push back your editor when your editor, you know, um, if your editor wants you to go in a, in a direction that you don't agree with as the person that's seeing, witnessing the event. And so, um, sure, I, I think that, you know, weapons of mass destruction aside, um, you know, I, I wish that I had spent more time really understanding why the United States was detaining these people. And, um, you know, what it was exactly they had done. You know, we had done, not just, not me, but, you know, my colleagues at the Washington Post did a really good job about truth squatting, you know, the, the disbanding of the, of the Iraqi army, you know, which in retrospect, others have said was a huge mistake, if not the biggest mistake when the U.S. invaded Iraq. So, um, you know, I wish we had, had done more. Um, you know, in, in, in writing about that. But, you know, part of the problem in, in the period of time that I was first there was that it was extraordinarily dangerous to even be out reporting as an American. Um, you know, the fear of kidnapping, um, you know, I guess you could, you could argue, well, you went there, you get over it, and you go out. Well, no, you, you know, you're no good to your organization dead. My publisher made that clear to me before I went. And so, um, you know, and it wasn't just my life I was concerned about protecting. It was all the Iraqis who were helping me do my job, who were at even greater risk than I was. So, um, you know, there were places we could not go to report the story because of the dangers. Um, and that's unfortunate. Well, that that's... Um, I was struck in your book by um, just how many Iraqi people were involved with the Washington Post as kind of an extended family. Yeah, you know, the Washington Post and other news organizations, we could not have functioned without our Iraqi staff. Um, I have said this many times, that the Iraqi correspondents, the fixers and translators who worked for the Washington Post were often my eyes and ears when it was physically impossible for me to leave the office. You know, I didn't, I didn't want, I didn't volunteer to go to Iraq to stay in the Baghdad Bureau of the Washington Post and never leave. I mean, I did leave, but, you know, there were periods of time when I couldn't go out. Go out. I didn't go to send some 22-year-old Iraqi out in my place um, so that I could stay comfortable. That's not what motivates me as a journalist. And so it was frustrating. It was really frustrating for me to be there and to not be able to do the reporting for myself. And, you know, our staff um, were, were well-trained and, you know, Several of them went on to become really great journalists, you know, Omar Fakeki among them. Um, you know, but at the time, they were very inexperienced reporters. They knew the language. They knew the city. But, you know, I had a lot of report experience as a reporter um, that I wasn't able to use. Um, but, you know, that said, you know, they have never been given the credit that they have deserved. Um, you know not just for keeping us safe, but for doing the journalism that, you know, I was not capable of doing because of the, of the risks. And they then assumed those risks. You know, many of them are now refugees in the United States because they work for the Washington Post. So they gave up their family, they gave up their country, um, you know, because we asked them to report for us. And so 
I would like to see them honored in a way more than they have been. The, the post was better than a lot of when than many news organizations. Um, you know, the New York Times had, you know, a split house where the Iraqis had to stay in one section and the correspondents in another. And I can't imagine having that kind of a, you know, colonistic approach to the Washington Post. Um, that makes me very sad, you know, that, that that's how their Iraqi correspondents, you know, were treated. Is there a good reason for that? No, there's no good reason. I mean, you can ask John Burns himself, the former Baghdad bureau chief for the New York Times, why he did that. But I will say there's no good reason for that. I mean, if you are, if you don't trust the people you hire, then don't hire them. They know where you are. They know your movements. You don't want to share a meal with them. You know, I, I, my, the Iraqi staff for me became family. Um, and, you know, I resisted even this you know, the correspondents ate dinner together, and then, you know, and, you know, even the little bit of, you know, cultural splitting that we did at the post house, you know. I remember when I um, filled in as bureau chief for Rajiv Shantasekharan, who was the bureau chief at the time, it was just a day or two, he had to do something, and he asked me, he left me in charge, it was very, this is the first summer I was in Iraq, and there was a bomb threat or something, I think I wrote about this in the book, I haven't read the book since I wrote it, so I I don't remember a lot of it, but I do remember, um, you know, the staff coming to me and saying, you have to evacuate. And I said, no, if we, you're not staying and I'm good, I get to go. Why? Cause I'm an American. My life is worth more than yours. No, if anybody's leaving, we're all leaving or we're all staying, you know? And I remember resisting that, you know, that notion that somehow I was the, you know, as the chief, you know, I was the general, I had to be protected. So, um, that's not my that has never been my idea of leadership. You ever plan to go back? I was last in Iraq in um, 2011, so it's only been a few years. Um, there's certainly a good story again in Iraq, um, uh, you know, and I I would you know love to tell it in some respects, but I also um, have a family now, and so. Um, you know, I have other obligations um, beyond the story. And so, um, you know, I mean, I went back to Iraq after I left the Washington Post. I helped start the first independent student newspaper at the American University of Iraq. And if I go back, um, I would, you know, um, I, I, could, I could see myself going back to, to the Kurdistan region um, and taking my children with me. But, you know, not right now. Let's let's sort of wrap up on on the school thing. So you started a journalism program out there? No, not a journalism program. So I, um, after I left the the, the Washington Post, um, you know, and I had some issues with post traumatic stress, and um, you know that I so I I needed to kind of work my way through that, and then I was I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, you know, because I thought I you know, be buried at the Washington Post. I thought I'd spend my entire career there. And, um, you know, after I left, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and whether I wanted to return to the region as a freelancer. And um, I had an opportunity um, to go be the director of media relations at the um, American University of Iraq. Um, but my real motivator in going to take that position was to start a student newspaper, which I did, um, the, uh, the Voice. And um, that experience trumped any I had working for the Washington Post, um, to be able to, you know, to do something that meaningful, um, to create something, you know, for the Iraqis, you know, I mean, as reporters, we're the consummate consumers. We take, we take people's moments of pain and joy. We take, we just consume, consume, consume. And so it's exhausting, you know, to, to be that much of a consumer. And so I wanted to be a producer, you know, for a moment. And so starting this newspaper for me was a, an opportunity to produce. And then I was, I um, won a Fulbright scholarship and I went to Oman and I did the same thing. I started um, the first independent newspaper at, at, the, at Sultan Qaboos University in Oman, which has not survived. It did not survive, but the, the voice did survive. So I suppose I need a third one to create the trifecta. You can be like the Johnny Appleseed of uh, Middle Eastern student <laughs> journalism. 
I loved, you know, it was really my Iraqi students, many of them whom I'm still in close contact with, who made me realize that I, I could teach. I applied for the job at Columbia College when I was um, in Iraq because um, it just was such an, a powerful experience to be able to teach and to, to teach my brand of journalism. You know, and what's my brand of journalism? Well, somebody taught me their brand of journalism, and I adopted it, bits and pieces of my editors. And I, you know, I had never been an editor um, as a when at the Washington Post. And um, you know, teaching for me the way that I do it is a lot like editing. I, I I try to be the best. I try to emulate the best editor I had at the Washington Post. Who was that? Well, Leslie Walker. Um, was definitely one. I had many great editors, but Leslie Walker was probably one of the best um, editors that I had. Um, she was one of my first editors, and she's now a co-editor at the American Journalism Review. So when I had an opportunity to write for her again, um, I did. You know, but I've had really good editors at the Christian Science Monitor. Uh, Krista Case Bryant was one of the most fantastic editors I had after leaving the Post. Um, and, you know, I was, I've been fortunate because I've been able to be fairly picky with my freelancing because I don't do it for a living. I've always had something else that I've done. And so um, I have to have good editors because I've always had them. And so I'm more picky about the publication based on the editing I'm going to get than about the publication itself. But I'm, I'm fairly picky in general. Yeah, if you work for a good editor, it's hard to go work for a crappy editor. Yeah. But we all have to, right? And and it's a good experience um, to learn, you know, <laughs> how to how to push back or just you know, there are newspapers are writers new. I think it's still there still are writers newspapers and editors newspapers. You know, and I worked for a writers newspaper, and so my editors trusted me and trusted my reporting. They guided me, but they trusted me, and um, that's a very different experience than working for an editor's publication, where the editor is very heavy-handed and you know thinks he or she knows the story better than you do on the ground. And so that's a much more challenging um, position to be in. That's no good. That's no good. Any closing thought? Closing thoughts. On the universe, it's all resting on you? <laughs> I still have a lot more stories to write. And, um, you know, journalism for me is something that I just can't stop doing. And I feel so fortunate um, to have found something that I love because not everybody does. And, you know, I would like, I would like to continue to be a voice for responsible journalism, you know, as we muddle through, um, you know, our broken business model and, you know, how to make this work with fewer resources. And, um, you know, I would like to continue to talk about objectivity, even though it's you know, out of season, um, because I think that, um, you know, after things, the, you know, people are so bombarded with information, and I have to believe, and maybe I'm in denial, but I have to believe that um, accurate information and good reporting and good journalism is, a, is eventually going to win again. It's not winning right now, but eventually I hope it wins again, and I hope I'm alive to see it. Well, I hope you're alive to see it, too. <laughs> and on that note of optimism, I very much appreciate you taking some time to talk with me. Sure.